Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, all right. Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of Who Gets to Decide. This is Seth Martin, your host. Thank you for joining me this evening. Glad you're here. Happy you're listening. Well, we've had two big days in a row in the market. And, you know, these types of market moves to the upside could be very, very compelling. Um, you, you start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm missing out. I got to get in, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But I want, I want to caution my listeners here because some of the biggest rallies are in bear markets. Uh, once, once the market gets really oversold, you get a big rally, uh, to relieve that overselling and, uh, the mar- you know, look, the market doesn't just go straight down. It doesn't go straight up. There, there are ebbs and flows as, as, uh, trades are executed and shares change hands. But I want to caution people about the, the most recent, um, strong up moves. These can be, um, these can be violent as we've seen, uh, but they tend to suck a lot of people in and then the real violence happens on the downside. So I think we're in a, in a pretty, uh, the, really the early stages of a bear market and we're going to see much, much lower prices. Uh, of course, you know, your money is your money and you need to invest it accordingly and take the responsibility for what you do for it with it rather. But, um, I think there we're in a, we're in a, a cycle, uh, a large cycle degree bear market. And we're just at the beginning and to talk about this today, we're going to listen a little bit to Jeremy Grantham. Jeremy Grantham is a very famous investor, very wealthy guy, done, has done very well in uh, equity and bond markets throughout his career. But even as he says himself, he's an old codger and um, nobody wants to listen to an old codger. But we're going to listen to Jeremy Grantham today because he's very, very smart and he is someone you should listen to, unlike Jim Cramer. If and when we reach a period of pessimism, the potential unraveling in terms of perceived wealth is much greater this time than it will have ever been before. I think since I said that, we could take out the rivaling 1929 and 2000. I think we've gone way past that. There are examples of large-scale craziness and meme investing, etc for which there is simply no parallel in 1929 even, or 2000. 2000 had pet.coms and they were kind of glorious, but they were scores of millions or a few hundred million. We have crazy things now that are billions and in some cases, tens of billions. And uh, we were the most impressive speculation, I think. There is nothing like that at scale, even adjusted for current dollars in 1929. And we are down 80%, which is a fairly fearful decline. But along with us, the next tier of speculative stocks also came down. The SPAC index is down over 20%. The market is a self-correcting mechanism, but it's a little wonky in the time it takes. Sometimes it corrects pretty 
quickly and sometimes it corrects uh, incredibly slowly and that's the problem but one of the things he said right at the beginning is a clue to what Jeremy Grantham believes drives the market and it's it's a word that just a single word that he used pessimism he said when and if we get a period of pessimism so what he's what he's telling you there there's a there's a lot of people that invest different ways right people look at PE ratios, they look at earnings multiples, they look at values, you know, just good companies and earnings rate, growth rates and things like that. But kind of a, almost a little known secret about the stock market is that it's driven by mood, uh, good mood and bad mood or pessimistic mood. And what I'm talking about is the very, the very large degree uh, types of movements, the kind that you need to be aware of if you're, if you have a 401k that you're putting money into, excuse me. Um, so what he's talking about there is he's saying, he, he's saying we have a bubble, right? We have numerous bubbles and many, many things have already gone down. He mentioned something called SPACs, that's special, special acquisition companies, something, uh, these are these were these were businesses where they didn't even tell you what they were going to invest in. They just said, "Give us your money, and we'll invest them in something in some sort of special purpose acquisition corporation." And so, these are obviously very speculative instruments. And what he's talking about is the SPACs are down eighty percent. And later on in his in this interview. And you don't hear any questions, but there's an interview here. He talks about how the market tends to roll over in stages, right? Your most speculative stuff rolls over first. And then people kind of go, oh, yeah, well, those things were very speculative. Of course, they're going to roll over and go to zero or whatever. And then your kind of your mid caps start to roll over. And the market, the market, you know, they, they come for these these categories one at a time. And then eventually they come for the Coca-Colas and Apples and, you know, the, the big mega companies that are perceived safe uh, because that's just the way the market happens. And you'll hear him talk about this a little later on in the interview. If you go back to 2000, which is the previous leader in speculation, let's say, mm -hmm. what happened there is the market peaked in March of 2000. And uh, between March and September, the uh, pet.coms basically went out of business. The internet stocks basically went down 80%. But the whole dot-com, the whole uh, TMT bubble burst, and the industry, which had been 30% of the market, declined by 50%. The S&P was unchanged. And you could have said during that five-month, six-month window, oh, isn't that healthy? They're selling the flakiest pet.coms, and uh, they're buying uh, Coca-Cola. What's not to like about that? That's exactly what happened. And I like to think of them as the kind of pessimism termites. They ate through the craziest first and then the junior growth stocks and then the intermediate growth stocks. And then finally, Cisco, which was for eight minutes or so, the biggest company in the world by market cap. And they were yes. all down collectively 50%. The balance of the market was up 17%. So that looked incredibly healthy, but then the termites reached the broad market and the entire 70% rolled over. 
and fell 50% in two years. And the Nasdaq was down 82%. The thing about the underpinnings is they always look terrific. That's right. The underpinnings, the the stalwarts of the market, you know, the the, the ones that big institutional money has their has their money in, you know, pension funds and things like that, you know, the apples, those underpinnings always look strong. But eventually, uh, what he calls the termites here, they come for it all. And I've and I've uh, I've mentioned that before on the program that in a, in a big uh, cycle or super cycle degree bear market, which it seems like we're in um, potentially. I mean, we don't really know for sure. In fact, we won't know until we are much of the way through it. Uh, but you, there are ways of kind of estimating where we are, and I won't go into that in this uh, program, but uh, it, it would appear that we're in a large either cycle or super cycle degree, uh, the very beginning of a, a, a bear market. So, but he's right. The underpinnings always appear strong, and people say that. People say, oh, you know, the market, the, the stalwarts of the market are still strong, and, you know, they've only gone down about 15%, and that's a healthy um, kind of sell-off, you know, to you'll hear terms like, you know, that that removes the stock from weak hands and and puts it in strong hands. I mean, the, mar- the, the stock market people have this whole other language they speak, I believe, to try to make people feel comfortable about leaving their money in because they know they can't pull all their money out. When, you, when you're really, really, really rich and you have you know, $10 billion in the market, or you have $50 billion in the market spread out over hundreds of companies, you can't just hit the sell button. It doesn't work like that. That amount of, that amount of stock would crash the market. But many of you out there, you might have, you know, three or $400,000 maybe, maybe you have a million dollars. But trust me, you could hit the sell button on that and the market wouldn't even know it. You wouldn't even see a blip in the market. But because the big money guys can't do that, what they spend all their time telling you is that you can't time it, that, you know, over the long haul, stocks go up. And that's true. That's that's true that over the long haul, stocks do go up. And the reason is, is because the stock market is essentially um, kind of a financial representation of uh, the general progress of human beings. But there are setbacks from time to time. And a lot of these setbacks are driven by credit expansion and things like that. So uh, we've got an enormously uh, huge bond market that's way overvalued. We have a housing market that's overvalued to at least it, as much as it was in 2007. And then we got a stock market which has valuations that it's never seen this high. I mean, it's higher than it's ever been in history. So that's a lot of bubbles and there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, price discovery along the way down to the bottom, wherever the bottom may be. In 1929, the market didn't peak when they thought the underpinnings were terrible. They peaked when the market's enthusiasm for the underpinnings was approximately the highest it had ever been in history. In 2000, in March, the world uniformly, including the boss of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, they all thought the system had never been better. 
at the top of the housing bubble in 07, Bernanke and the boys thought the US housing market had never declined, unquote. It merely reflected a strong US economy. The underpinnings were great. They have never gotten it right. The Federal Reserve in particular has never had a clue about asset bubbles. It doesn't even address it. They act as if they don't exist, except on the upside, they occasionally take credit for the wealth effect helping the economy along. And it does. There is an income effect, and it does help the economy along. And Greenspan, Bernanke, and Yellen all took credit explicitly for helping the economy along. What they never did is they never took discredit for the reverse side. Yeah, when somebody starts talking about the fact that the market's never been better, that's almost like ringing a bell at the top. I mean, they're using they're using um, success or or the the place that we are in the market to say something about the future value of the market, but they're doing it at at valuations that have never been higher, and so that really should give you a clue that that the timing of their advice or their recommendation or their prediction or whatever is, is, is way, way over, overblown and you should be cautious. And he's right. You know, the federal reserve has never gotten this right. Um, things were just great right up until the day before the housing crisis in 2008, Greenspan never saw any uh, thing coming in 2000. Bernanke never saw anything coming in 2008. And the thing that really, irritates me about these people is they swoop in as if they're the only ones that can save things when they themselves are the ones that created it. That's what kills me the most. They start talking about failures of market, you know, of market capitalism and moral hazard when they themselves set the moral hazard up. They set it up in the system and then blame capitalism um, for pursuing some sort of moral hazard. So it just, just, you know, I don't know how to convince you that these people just don't know what they're doing, but they don't. They think that credit expansion and, um, and all this kind of stuff leads to prosperity and it does temporarily. But, you know, if you if your net worth goes up two, 300%, but then goes down 85%, I mean, you you basically haven't gained any. In fact, in fact, you've you've lost you, your 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 net gain is a net loss. The market is mean reverting mm-hmm. mechanism, and eventually right. it goes back to a fair price. And when it went back in two thousand and one, two thousand and two, it had a dreadful negative income effect. When the housing market collapsed and it took the equity market with it, it had a double pronged negative effect on the economy. So it had a much bigger impact on the economy than had occurred in 2000. And this time, we're really playing with fire because this time, unlike 2000, we have an overpriced bond market. Jim Grant would argue the most overpriced in 4,000 years. We have, in my opinion, and that of many other bubbled students, the most overpriced US equity market in history. We have a housing market that three weeks ago reached the same multiple of median family income as it did in 2006 at the peak of the housing bubble. And we have commodities that have recently run amok so that the Goldman Sachs index of non-energy, which is food and metals, which are pretty important, 
-hmm. have just equaled the peak of 2011, which was said to be one of the super cycle commodity events. So this is the first time we've ever risked three and a half asset classes bubbling at the same time. If and when we reach a period of pessimism, the potential unraveling in terms of perceived wealth is much greater this time than it will have ever been before. The term perceived wealth is very important here because, and and I've kind of talked about some of this before, but because of the distortions created by the credit expansion in the market, you know, people go out and do things. They remember human beings act. They act in the marketplace. They buy things. They invest in things. And what, what happens is because of these distortions, they might go out and buy a new house that maybe they can just barely afford, or they might go out and buy new cars because they're perceived, they, they look in their 401k and they go, shoot, man, we got a million and a half dollars in our 401k. We can, we're probably going to retire in a year. Uh, let's go out and buy a couple things. We can afford it. And they rationalize these types of things. And then to his point, when, when that wealth, that perceived wealth evaporates and gets cut in half or more, now all of a sudden you don't, you don't feel as, is wealthy. Uh, maybe you have trouble paying for these new things you bought. Maybe your house is, you stretched a little too far and it seems too expensive and now you got to get out of it or leave the keys on the front door and, and let the bank take it over or let the bank repossess one of your new vehicles or something. So these are this perceived wealth problem. You know, the reason it's a problem is, is it causes people, it, it steers people wrong. It gets them to believing in something that's not really there and causes their uh, decisions uh, to act in the marketplace to be altered somewhat. So, you know, of course it has a negative wealth effect. I mean, you, you all of a sudden uh, consumer spending goes way down and some businesses that decided to, you know, start a new business or whatever, uh, you know, they they end up going under because, um, consumers aren't buying as much and, and maybe they narrow their, um, purchasing to things that they need more rather than things they just want. And all these kinds of things have a very negative wealth effect and, and cause, uh, the economy to just violently swing back and forth as it works all this out. You quoted Robert Schiller, Nobel prize winning economist about the fact that that he said that even though his indices are showing the market at extreme valuations, that really compared to the bond market, which as you said, is very expensive, stocks don't seem so overpriced. What is your response to those kinds of arguments? I think the uh, interest rate argument is an explanation of how we get there in behavioral terms. It is not by any stretch of the imagination a justification. You don't justify anything by taking the most overpriced asset in the history of man, the bond market, and saying compared to that, we are merely very overpriced and therefore relatively cheaper. That is very cold comfort. Solomon Brothers, an important firm at the time in 1989, sent around a hit squad justifying the Japanese stock market, which was approaching 65 times earnings, we were told at the time the data was represented as 65 times earnings. That had never previously sold over 25. And so that was, to say the least, the real McCoy. 
And this team went around pointing out that the rates in Japan were so low that 100 PE would be fair. Of course, the collapse that followed in land and bonds and, and stocks was cosmic. In 1989, and it still hasn't recovered. It still hasn't reached the 1989 right. level in either their real estate market or their stock market, which reminds us of the cardinal rule, and that is the bigger the bubble, the most ingenious the argument, and the bigger the bubble, the most extended and painful the decline. I like that. The bigger the bub bubble, the more ingenious the argument. And you see this all the time. Uh, Robert Prechter calls it uh, justification. So what people do is they, they, they invest at current prices and then they justify. They really don't have a model for why the market moves up or down. And so what they do is they, they invest at current prices and then they justify or they rationalize to themselves as to why it should go 15% higher, 20% higher, 5% higher, whatever the number. And this is how people invest. This is they, they look at the economy and they think, wow, you know, technology is going to revolutionize things. It's going to, there are going to be ro robots waiting on us. Uh, and people would tell me this all the time. And I would look at them and say, do you know how many red lights I sit at and watch no cars cross in front of me? in the in the intersection that i'm sitting at i mean if technology was going to revolutionize things to that degree it seems like we could get the traffic lights to work so that i didn't have to sit all by myself at an intersection and wait for cars to go by but of course you know people this is just a rationalization this is just this is something going on in their own head about what they perceive uh, will be some future reality, and it, it it has no bearing on anything. So this is a this is why it's important to have some sort of uh, understanding of the market uh, in in terms of historical perspective, or um, you know he calls it mean reverting. You know the market always reverts to the mean. And, you know, you just have to have the discipline that once it gets stretched beyond, um, you know, the, the mean, whatever the mean is, that it, it tends to revert back to the mean. And many times it will go past the mean on the downside because it's the, the, the downside moves are so violent that it just slices right through the, the, the mean of the, the longer term trend back down to the downside so you just have to you you just have to have uh, a more uh, unbiased approach when you're looking at things like the market and valuations in the bond market i mean it's it's no surprise that the bond market is the most valued it's been or it's the most overvalued it's been in four thousand years according to jim grant and jim grant is probably the foremost expert in the interest rate market uh, he has a, a newsletter called Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I think is what it's called. And, you know, look, we spent a decade with the Fed buying bonds, buying treasury bonds, buying mortgage-backed securities and other securities to keep um, interest rates low. I mean, that's never happened before in history. So it's not a surprise that the bond market itself would be uh, so overvalued.
But this yeah. is the most broad, as I said, asset bubble of all time with three and a half of the four major asset classes clearly in severe bubble territory. Thinking that you have no alternative but pick between one of the four bubbles is a pretty grim way to view life. I get the argument, so pick a bubble, they'll all go together, probably, and you will suffer a lot of pain. And the intellectual content of that argument that they were all bubbles, so we had to pick the least bad one, will um, resonate in your heads as the market unravels. If you had a dozen to 15 years of flat market with earnings doing okay and yeah. rotation within the market, everything would work out fine. And every portfolio manager I almost ever met has felt in market bubbles that that could happen. It just right. never does. The market okay. abhors long sideways movements, as we all know. It either goes up more than you think or down more than you think. You can always hold out hope for an extended sideways movement but it never seems to arrive. Yeah, so just to recap, the the three asset classes or three and a half that he's talking about are stocks, bonds, commodities, and real estate. So, yeah, you know, we've got, um, you know, a, a bubble that just it covers all these important asset classes. And it, it's just interesting. I mean, I still run into people that say, oh, housing's not going to go down none of these what what i think what people get confused about is the dollar you know the, the all this money creation causes these assets to go up in value or actually what they're what's happening is they're going down in value right relative to the dollar um or they're staying let's say they're staying the same value but you're you're dividing them by more and more dollars, right? So the price has this tendency to go up. And what happens during a big bear market is you have essentially a disappearance of money. So remember the way money comes into existence is it's is it's borrowed into existence. And anytime something's borrowed, there's a note or there's a loan, okay? And what happens is, as these financial stresses build up and the economy starts to suffer, and more importantly, the people in the economy start to suffer, people that have borrowed money um, start to uh, potentially default on those loans. Uh, businesses close that owe money or file bankruptcy when they owe money. Uh, people that owe money undergo all this stress in the economy and they default. And when they default, uh, mo money disappears. That, that obligation, that future money just disappears from the economy. And this is very deflationary. This causes the value. It's, it's just the reverse of what the Fed does. And so this causes the value of these assets to then fall after the, after the Fed has spent years and years and years blowing them up. The, again, the dangerous part about it is people act, right? People act in the economy. And so some of these people act by buying things they really can't afford, and they're fooled into thinking they can afford them. And, uh, or they retire. Maybe they quit their job right before the crash. And then they figure out, oh, shoot, maybe I shouldn't have quit. I still have to work. 
I don't have as much money as I thought I did. And all these kinds of things happen in the economy and cause all these stresses. Let me just say, by the way, I have enormous sympathy for participating in a bubble. When I was young in 1968-69, we had a spectacular mini-bubble in tiny stocks, and they all quadrupled and made us rich, and then they all blew up together, and most of them went out of business. And I was just out of business school, and I made a small fortune, almost enough to think about retiring to England. And then in the space of about nine months, I lost everything back to $2,000, and was lucky to cover my leverage and get out without a huge debt. It was thoroughly exciting, probably the most exciting time I've ever had in investing. So I completely sympathize. Nobody who is young and investing and making money is going to listen to some old codger tell his war stories about when he got wiped out. I get that. So there's nothing that I can say that will cause anyone to change their behavior. The power, the psychological power of a bubble to suck everybody in is prodigious. And we've known that since the tulip bubble and it will never stop. It feels as psychologically difficult as reinvesting when terrified. They both catch the spirit of the exercise. Whether investing during bubbles is alluring or not alluring, it really is beside the point. We have a financial system that, if you're going to invest, requires you to invest within a bubble. The key is, is how do you know when it's time to step on the sidelines, because if you there, yes, you can, you could be allocated in a way. And he goes on to talk about emerging markets and stuff like that. But to me, it's just easier to start taking money off the table, you know, start, um, start going to cash or, take some of your assets and ladder really short-term bonds like, um, you know, a, a 90 day treasury, a six month treasury, a, a one year, a two year, and maybe stop at three years and just ladder those until the bubble starts to happen. And then you can step on the sidelines and just let it go past. And it may take a couple of years. In fact, one of the best ways to, to see, that a bubble has started to wane is when the VIX gets really high. It's very, very scary to step into the market when the VIX is around 85 or 90 or even 100. But it, if you see the VIX really collapse from those levels down to about 70, it's probably time to go ahead and step back in the market. In other words, you're going to see the VIX go very, very, very high, uh, maximum amount of fear in the market. And then you're going to see it collapse. And when it begins to collapse and, and, and collapses back down, say, below 70, that's probably your cue that the bear market is over and it's time to step back in the market. So to me, that's what you do. You, you when, when the VIX starts getting over about 25, you start to step aside and let the let the bear market come on down the tracks, and then you wait till it goes sky high in the above eighty mark, and and then when it starts to collapse back under seventy or sixty, that's when you put your four hundred one k back to work. I mean that that to me is about as simple uh, as you can get 
and you and you don't have to, and you can sleep well. That's the thing, you know. While the market overnight is selling off, you know, fifteen hundred Dow points, you're sleeping you know, right through it. It's not a big deal for you because you're in cash or money market fund or something like that. So these are the types of takeaways, you know, I would hope that you could get from this talk. And, you know, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, your money is your money. And whether it goes, you know, you accumulate a lot of money or you lose it all, it's your money and you have to decide what to do with it. And that's the really tough thing. Uh, because there's, you know, there's industry people that clearly know a lot more finance than me or you, uh, you know, always telling you to stay in. And there's just a lot of, you know, information out there that uh, a lot of uh, peer pressure, if you will, to do certain things in the market to behave a certain way. And it's always there. It's just always there. And there's not much you can do about it. But, you know, study on your own and do your own research and uh, listen to, try to listen to people who you, who you respect. I, I, I recommend Jim Rogers. I recommend Jeremy Grantham. I recommend, um, oh, there's, there's several people out there. You can find some stuff from Peter Lynch, although he's not the best. Um, uh, Jeff Gun, Gunlock, I would listen to him. He's really good. You could follow Doug Casey. He's always good to listen to. He has a show called International Man and, and a blog called International Man. You can find it online. Uh, he's, he's good. Uh, but be careful who you listen to. You want to you listen to people that are not trying to manipulate you um, and you know, don't have an incentive for you to keep all your money under management. A lot of these, a lot of these broker guys, well, the way they're paid is they just collect a lot of money and they invest it. They help you invest it, but they get paid like a management fee based on how much, how many, how many assets they have under management. So if you've got a hundred million dollars under management and you get 1% fee, that means you get paid a million dollars a year to keep all that money under management. So anyway, with that, I'm going to go ahead and end the show and we'll come back tomorrow. As long as you keep coming back, I'll keep coming back and we'll keep talking about who gets to decide. Mm-hmm.